But now he's Ooh. still got to finish the deal. He's going up against Sarah Spain, who's got 69 career wins. She's been stuck on that for a while. Nice. You yeah. said it, not me. We'll see what happens yeah. in Showdown next. They said, we're going to buy you for $60 million. And I had taken all my proceeds from my previous company and put them in that company. So I had 72% of the company. That was a $42 million payday. Should have been. So next thing I find myself when my two main competitors have been bought by my main partner to compete with me. So that was a very tough moment. It's unusual, but my co-founder is my wife. Your first wife? No, my second wife. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have an idea and people say, oh, I'd love to have that, but right now I don't, so I don't do anything. It means that the problem is not big enough if people are not acting on it. And so I had to go from a company with 65 employees to a company with 20 employees in a single day. Hey, I'm Nicholas Vandenberg, founder. I'm 53. This is my fourth startup. I'm founder and CEO of Chili Piper. We solve a very simple problem. Most companies have a website form where they spend a lot of money to bring traffic to their website and they ask people to fill a form to get in touch with the company. Upon form submission, the prospect gets a message, somebody's going to call you and they wonder who's going to call them and when. We solve that problem when prospect fill a form. We immediately use the data to qualify the prospect. We find in real time sales reps who should be in charge of that prospect. We dial the rep or we retrieve their calendar and connect instantly. That's Chili Piper. As I mentioned, I've done uh, three startups before, so it's not my first one. I came to the U.S. in the mid-90s to go to Stanford Business School, fell in love with tech and entrepreneurship, and here I am. Cool. Well, yeah, why don't we talk about a little bit more about your company here? So everyone who's interested, if you have a website and you have a contact form, it seems yours would be like simple software, like, hey, why has someone not invented this yet? But I think we've talked about before, even before we started recording, it's just a lot of those contact forms, how many people have them on their website and then no one responds to them. It seems like a very simple thing, but that's what you're here to help is actually make sure that if someone visits someone's website, that someone on the sales side actually calls them and you can schedule something in the calendar. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So as you said, it's a very simple idea. The idea that when the prospect fills a form, you provide the prospect with an immediate connection. So you actually call the prospect or provide a calendar to book immediately. That seems a very simple idea. And it is a simple idea. It's actually very difficult to do. The following reason, the form is typically handled by the marketing team. So it's part of the marketing system. Typically, things like Marketo and Pilot and these type of companies, uh, they track all the steps that a prospect takes on a website and then provide a form to capture the information of the prospect and put it all together. Getting in touch with the prospect is actually the responsibility of sales. So sales team is going to receive this prospect, look at them. They need to be assigned to the right rep. So maybe the East Coast goes to East Coast, the West Coast goes to West Coast team. Maybe the large companies go to somebody different. So it's a different responsibility. And that's the reason why until now there was this waiting period for the prospect. It was a coordination between these two teams. So it turned out that to, from a technology standpoint, we had to integrate with all the marketing systems and all the sales systems. And that's what made it difficult. So in the end, after quite a few months of engineering, we cracked it. We came up with a solution that works and it looks like magic. But behind the scene, it was a little bit more complicated than that. I have a WordPress website, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. But again, some of these plugins that I've even paid for, 
it's just hard to like, just because someone fills out a contact form doesn't necessarily mean they're going on my calendar and doing all this. Again, it sounds like something simple that you're trying to help fix and connecting a sales department and a marketing department and then getting the sales leads, this actual contact information. So they actually contact the people who fill out these forms. It's hard for me to say, but I imagine a high percentage of people who fill out contact forms never even get contacted. That's exactly right. That's actually the best kept secret of the industry. The conversion rates because of this breakpoint is actually typically below 50%. So most companies lose more than half their leads through that process. Most extreme case we've seen is a company converting at 20%, which means that they were losing 80% of their leads. Typically, high-velocity businesses where people just come and check. So, for example, Square is one of our customers. And when your credit card system breaks down, you say, okay, I need to fix it. You're going to look at which vendors are providing payment processing. You find Square, you go to the website, you apply. If they don't reply and somebody else does, you're going to sign up with the next one. So it's critical to respond immediately to an inbound request. And again, the leakage is massive. And with our solution, because we connect in real time, we typically double the conversion rates. So we've seen companies plateau at 40%. So with the current process of filling a form, the prospect waiting, the sales team reaching out, they optimize how they organize their sales team and they're able to convert 40% of the inbound. And then they put chili paper. Our product is called Concierge. So they put chili paper in their form and all of a sudden the prospects is connected in real time and we bring them up to 80% conversion rate. So it's a massive difference in the effectiveness of the whole process. One thing that companies are often nervous about is unqualified prospects. So you mentioned it, you have a WordPress site, you put a form, but you don't want to book with everybody. So what we can do is use data to qualify prospects in real time. We even have a company called Gong where when form is submitted, we're going to retrieve data about the prospect based on the email address. We'll find the company name, we'll find the company site, and based on this data, we're going to show a calendar or not. So that if you have people you're not interested in talking to, then they will not see a calendar. They will just see a page that say, thank you. Somebody will get back to you and you can send an automated message, just thanking them for the interest, but telling them that you're not uh, available. So that was a big problem to companies wanting to be able to take the time to qualify prospects. And that's something that we solved with rule-based qualification. Again, I'm not trying to push your product too much, but I really think it is something that could help a lot of people who are listening. Feel free to push our product. We'll be here. <laughs> I know. You're going to have to hire me after this. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Well, I was going to say part of the reason exactly what you've mentioned is I think a lot of the conversion rate's pretty low because a lot of people get spam messages through the contact us form. And if you're able to stop people from doing that too, then obviously people want to talk to qualified leads. So if your product's able to do that, and it seems it's pretty cheap, I see even the pricing, you can even start off at like 25 bucks a month. That's right. Well, we have an extra charge of $200. So it typically you start at $225 a month. Yeah. Right. Although most of our customers have larger teams, so they'll have more than one rep taking meetings. Yeah. Right. Based on obviously whatever WordPress or plugin you're using or whatever contact form, if you're not utilizing that, I think it's worth checking out. So I appreciate yeah, you giving us a good rundown. I think everyone kind of understands what your software does and kind of help them if they've got their own website and aren't reaching out to those people. But I'm sensing you have an accent. So I'm imagining you're not from the U.S.? That's right. I came in the mid-90s, so it's 26 years now. I think by now I would have lost my accents. But A, it's difficult, and B, uh, I had this thing happen to me. I'll tell you the story. So my fiancé at the time in the mid-90s said, I booked you with a speech therapist. And I said, you booked me with a speech therapist. Why? I said, well, because you have such a strong accent. I said, okay. That was 25 years ago. 
And then before my appointment, we had brunch with uh, my fiance and some girlfriends of hers. And I said, Heather booked me with a speech therapist. And the friend said, but why? I said, you lose my accent. And they both at the same time said, are you out of your mind? Where would you lose your accent? Then I realized that there was a secret plot from my fiance losing my accent. So I did not fight it. And that's why here I am today. I sound like I'm fresh off the boat, but I've been here a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you stand out. Marketing 101, right? Right. That's the idea. So a French accent? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in the south of France, a town called Marseille. I studied in Paris at Ecole Polytechnique moved to London, and I came to the U.S. in the mid-90s. I was super fortunate with the timing. I was at Stanford Business School. It's the time when the internet was invented. It wasn't Al Gore was there, but there was a company called Netscape, if you remember that. They launched pretty much the first commercial browser, and the whole thing started. One of my classmates from Stanford is the co-founder of eBay. Um, the founders of Yahoo were at Stanford at the same time as I was, so it was a fascinating time. How old were you when you actually started at Stanford in the mid-90s and came over from France? I was in my late 20s. Okay. I was 28. And then I started a company immediately. Well, before that, what was the reason? Why did you want to come to the U.S. and go to Stanford Business School and then start your own business? I didn't uh, want to start my own business. I wanted to come to Stanford because I'd seen pictures of how California was beautiful. And I love traveling. And I thought that spent two years in California. And then uh, we moved to Asia. I'd seen pictures of Hong Kong. And by the way, it's funny because to these days, I've not been to Hong Kong. But that was my plan. Two years in California and then I moved to Hong Kong. Well, I don't know if you want to go to Hong Kong right now, right? That is probably not the rule. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I missed my chance, yeah. Yeah. I started the Stanford Business School and they brought in successful entrepreneurs. And one of them was Steve Jobs. At the time, was running Next, which was nicknamed Next to Nothing because it was really struggling. And he sat on the floor, I was about 20 students, and pretty much spent his time complaining about the press and how they were criticizing his company next, and it was unfair. But he also, of course, talked about all the things he had done before. And I found it so inspiring that I thought, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a tech entrepreneur. I want to build something that is used by thousands of millions of people that change how things are done. And from there, I dropped my Hong Kong plan, and I decided to stay with the Bay Area. So that's what I did. And you said you came over with your fiance too? No, I met her at Stanford. Okay. But we got married and we got divorced. So there's been a few cycles afterwards. So failed startup. <laughs> that's right. So I guess after MBA, yeah, getting your MBA at Stanford, do you want to walk us through, again, you're at your late 20s, right? Yeah, that's right. And walk us through, I guess, your businesses? You know, sometimes life has some funny twists. So I was inspired by Steve Jobs in 1993. And I started my first company the year after 1994 with his uh, nemesis, John Scully. It just happened that way that I met John. I had a friend who had invented a technology to manipulate images in real time. So think of a Photoshop, but the time Photoshop was very, very slow, which was a problem. And he had invented a way to do Photoshop much faster. And he, his name was Bruno, John Scully and I thought, wow, we can go after the consumer market and build the best software for people to play with their photo on the computer. Now, you have to remember in the mid-90s, there was no photo on the computer. Photos were a film. And John Scully knew the CEO of Kodak. But it was thought that some part of the photo industry would move to digital. Now, of course, nobody remembers film. But at the time, it was the idea that some people are going to go digital and therefore they shouldn't have a software. So we started a company to do exactly that. We built, you could call it Photoshop for Dummies. 
I was founder and CEO, and in our first year of shipment, we did six million in revenues. It took us 12 months to build the product, and then we did six million in revenues. A lot of our revenues were from hardware vendors would bundle our software with their device. So IBM bundled our software with their PC, Epson bundled our software with their printers, HP bundled our software with their scanners. It all made sense because they had this hardware device that was capable of manipulating images, but they needed to make it easy. And that's what our software did. You need to find software, but you also have other things to do, things you'd probably rather be doing. Cut to the chase with Capterra, the website millions of people use monthly to find software for their teams or businesses. Captera is the free online resource that millions use monthly to find the best software solution for their business. Captera simplifies your software search into just a few steps. First, use their free resources and guides to pinpoint the problem and identify the software features you need. Then you can filter options to find the right software for your industry. There are more than 700 specific categories of software. You can compare categories like CRM, e-commerce, and help desk software. And the best part is that you can compare them side by side and save your favorites to a short list. With free in-depth software guides and tools, plus over 1 million reviews from real users, Captera gives you access to everything you need to know before you buy. So spend less time trying to find software and more time doing what you do best. Visit captera.com slash millionaire for free today to find the software tools you need for your business. captera.com slash millionaire. captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. captera, software selection simplified. We all have an idea of what our dream job looks like, but someone isn't just going to hand it to you. Odds are you'll need at least a bachelor's degree to make that dream a reality. And I know it's hard to go back to school while you're working. That's why you'll love Ashford University. Convenient and flexible. See, Ashford University's online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn at your own pace. You can study wherever you're the most comfortable learning. One course at a time. See, Ashford University's six-week long courses allow you to take one course at a time. Being enrolled in one class at Ashford means you're considered a full-time student. And when you graduate, getting that degree from Ashford can help you rise up the ranks to that C-level suite faster than you ever thought. See, there's also no standardized tests required. That's SAT, GRE, GMAT, and other standardized test scores are not required for enrolling at Ashford University. Last but not least, accreditation. Ashford University is fully accredited by WASC, Senior College, and University Commission. So get on the road to earning your degree and making your dream job a reality. Enroll now by going to ashford.edu slash millionaire. That's ashford.edu slash millionaire to start your degree today. One more time, that's ashford.edu slash millionaire. And also even today, right, if you buy a new computer, if anyone's thinking you buy a new HP laptop or something like that, a lot of the times there's already software installed on there. So yours was just one of those software applications on there? That's exactly right. Okay. It's a pre-installed to provide extra value to the device buyer. Yeah, which is great because then you don't have to mark it as hard, right? And it makes sense because they want it. Like you said, if you have a copier or scanner, you need a software like yours to edit it. That's right. It's a beautiful model for the company because. You're exactly right. We need to market. So the second year, 
I started the company, we grew 55 people. My controller comes to my office and says, hey, did you raise some money of an investor? I said, no. I said, we just received a wire from $1.2 million and I don't know what it is. So I said, let me have a look. And we look at the, this wire for $1.2 million and it was Epson Asia. So the region Asia Pacific, we had a deal with Epson and they would pay us, at the time it was $1.50 for every printer they sold. And they sold uh, three quarter of a million printer because they think we're selling like hotcakes. So they just sent us the money. We did nothing. We just received this $1.2 million in the bank. As you can imagine, that was a very compelling business model. We got an offer from a company in Seattle to buy the company for $50 million. So we were two and a half years into it. And I thought, let's just sell the company. But at the time, John Scully and the other board members didn't want to sell. They wanted to continue. We were on track to do 10 million revenues. And I thought, look, $50 million for two years of work is a good deal. We should take it. In addition, I was very eager to do something different. All around me, people were doing internet stuff. By now, it was uh, 1998. The internet was completely fascinating to me. And I wanted to move on from consumer software and do things online. So I sold my shares. So that was the first million dollar deal that I did. I was in 30 at the time. And 31, I started another company. And this time I decided to go with the internet business. So it was an e-commerce company called Redcart. And before, yeah, we jumped to Redcart. So you're 31, you're saying at this time, I guess, were you married at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like everything was, you've hit the American dream, right? Coming from France and then selling your shares and having a million bucks and starting your own company at 31. It was the American dream on mushroom because you know everybody was crazy. It was San Francisco in 1988, 1999. It was the dot-com boom. It really was the American dream on hallucinations. When I started the first company in 1995, I decided to set my office in San Francisco instead of the Bay Area, instead of the Palo Alto and Silicon Valley. But at the time, it's hard to believe, but there was almost no tech in San Francisco. Three years later, it was impossible to find an office in San Francisco. All these dot-com had invaded the city. So I called a real estate broker. She said, I'm going to show you a space. She hesitated and said, I'm a space. So we drove and it was a car, a body shop. So they were fixing cars and she said, the lease is running out. We can just clear, remove all the oil and stains and make it an office. It was in the Mission District where there was no office. I said, great, let's do it. And we took that body shop and turned it into a beautiful office. And that was what needed to be done because all the regular office space was already busy with Aussie.com. So it was really incredible. And yes, it felt like the American dream. I bought myself a BMW Z3 convertible. If you remember from the time it was launched by James Bond, I lived up on Russian Hill. So I drive every morning from the top of the hill in my convertible to my office in Mission District. It really felt too good to be true. And some of these was too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, why don't we jump back into the story then? You start a company called Redcart Technologies in this auto shop. Yeah, that's right. So we were aggregating merchants into a universal shopping cart. So I signed deals with merchants and our customers were portals. At the time, it was called portal, which was sites with a lot of traffic. And the, what we provided was a way for these sites to monetize their traffic by enabling commerce on their site. We were working with both sides, the merchants and the sites. And a funny thing happened a few months after launching, 
I got an email from Amazon. It was from somebody in the merchandising department. And they say, we've noticed that you, what's called proxy our website. This is against our terms of use. You have to stop absolutely immediately. This is not acceptable. Around 10 a.m. in the morning. Then at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, I remember vividly, I got an email from Amazon. It was corporate development. And the email said, we love what you guys do. It's awesome. Can you come to Seattle to talk to us about uh, possible collaboration? <laughs> so it appeared that they have not coordinated. I'm not sure why this happened the same day. but So I did go to Seattle and they started talking about buying the company. And again, this was early 2000, late 1990s. That's right. People wanted to purchase stuff online. So yours was a shopping cart software? So it was a bit more sophisticated than that. You would start on a website and we were multi-site shopping cart. So we would aggregate. So you could start, for example, on the, the Yahoo site and say, hey, I'm interested in buying a pair of shoes. And you could go to three different merchant sites and choose to put a pair of shoes in your cart from any of these three merchant sites. And then you could check out with our shopping cart and we would actually buy from the merchant. We had 120 merchants network. That's why we call it the universal shopping cart. So it wasn't a shopping cart technology like what you would find in uh, Magento or uh, Shopify of this solution. It was a multi-merchant aggregation. Which makes sense. That's why Amazon wanted to talk to you because you were doing it for their site and multiple sites that, like you were saying, you could go on eBay and buy something. And then at the very end, when you get done shopping, you press submit and you end up buying from multiple sites for the person. Yes, exactly. At the same time. And you're exactly right. So Amazon on the website, the merchant side, they were not happy because we were making it easy to buy on their competitors. So you could come to their site. And so we're helping buy, uh, consumers to buy on other sites. Where on the corporate development side, they said, wow, that's really cool because we could use it to help people buy on other sites and yet remain Amazon customers. Right. That makes sense why they were conflicting. Like both of them were looking at it differently. Okay. Yes, exactly. Anyway, corporate development started talking about buying the company. And then Yahoo came to us about buying the company. Then there was a company called GoTo, got all sort of interest. And then finally, CNET, if you remember the news site, came and made an offer. They said, we're going to buy you for $60 million. And I had taken all my proceeds from a previous company and put them in that company. So I had 72% of the company. That was a $42 million payday. Should have been. <laughs> because when we started the due diligence, I got a call from Halsey Miner, the CEO, and he said, listen, we've just announced another acquisition and they were publicly traded at the time. And the market is not reacting well. Our stock dropped 15%. I can't just announce a second acquisition. I need to go in on the roadshow to explain why we're acquiring companies and then we come back to you. It was February 2000, and I said, sure, no problem. At the time, I had other switchers, right? We were also talking to Yahoo, Amazon, and so I didn't see any problem. And that was the beginning of the nuclear winter when the bomb happened. So CNET never came back. Just the whole deal collapsed. All these other companies withdrew their interest. Venture capital money was no longer available, and so I had to go from a company with 65 employees to a company with 20 employees in a single day. On a Friday, we called everybody and we said, look, you can see what's happening. There's no more funding. Many of our customers are going under. And, and that's what we did. We had to let go uh, two-thirds of the company and continue with a much more compact team of 20 people. It was a real struggle. Uh, in the end, Microsoft came to us and said, look, we're interested in new technology. 
and they made a deal to, at that point we were desperate, so they made a deal to acquire the technology and the top people way below what their original offer is. So in the end, I lost my money on that deal, even after the Microsoft acquisition because of the game with preferences and things. And I thought, okay, it's time to move on. And I took a trip to Nepal. Have you ever been there? No, I haven't been there. But so you didn't get the $42 million payday? I did not get it, no. Were you close? We were signature away. Like a signature away, yeah. Everything was ready. And then, but your final offer when you got purchased by Microsoft was nowhere near that, right? That's right. It was 50 cents on the dollar on the preferred share. So there was no money left for the, for the common stockholders. So now you said it's time to go to Nepal, which is yeah. right where India is right now. I got it up on Google Maps right now. Yeah, that's right. Up in the mountains in where Everest and the Himalayas are. So I went trekking in the mountains with a friend of mine. And that was a bad thing to do because you're in San Francisco and you're convertible and you're complaining that you haven't made $42 million. And then you meet these people who can't buy shoes, you know, uh, or cannot drink Coke because it's too expensive. And then you think, what am I complaining about? Right? That was the purpose. Actually, I wanted to see people poorer than me and, and just free up my mind. So we trekked for a few weeks and it was awesome. And then when I came back to San Francisco, there was, it really felt like a neutron bomb that exploded. Like all these offices were empty. There was office space everywhere. There's this sense that the internet had been just an illusion and would never happen. So I moved to New York and thought I needed some different experience. Yeah. And before you moved to New York, so did you get accomplished what you wanted? I know you said you went there maybe just to get out of the tech scene and probably relax for a minute and see mother nature versus just dealing with tech all the time. Did that actually like help you realize that just because you didn't make the 42 million that you were a signature away of that life's going to be okay? You took me to the Nepal yeah. trip. Yes, absolutely. It puts things in perspective. Walking is very helpful to take perspective. It's a kind of meditation, at least walking in the mountains, because you free up your mind. You, it's very much a meditative state. And then you get a much better perspective. So yes, I came back and said, well, I'm not going to complain. This is what happens, what happened. Let's just move on to the next venture. Would you suggest that to anyone who's kind of, I mean, because I kind of find a similar thing. I try to take a trip every year, at least get away from business for a week or two and just try to not think about business. And to me, when I come back, I just feel clearer than versus just getting in the hamster wheel, if you will, of business sometimes. Yeah, very much so. I have a hard time these days not staying connected to work when I'm on vacation. Right. And it makes sense. It's just so tempting to just get on your laptop and check the less, latest deal in the works or product being designed. But going trekking in the mountains, you don't, I mean, there's no connection up there, right? So you're walking, it's not an option. Your phone has no connection. So that would heavily recommend it, yes. When you need to take some distance, going up in the mountains is awesome. Yeah. Or just getting away from where you normally are, even if someone's like, oh, I don't know if I can go to Nepal, but I mean, you can at least just take a trip to get out of town or something to, you know, now it's harder or versus earlier 2000s, like getting that internet connection, you didn't have it on your phone as easy and stuff. But again, it seemed like that helped you. So again, I didn't want to just bypass that because that seems like a cool kind of life journey along the way. Yeah, that's fine. So then you come back and you decide to go to New York? Yeah, I go to New York. When I got there, there was no tech scene. So it was 2001. New York was all about finance and media. It was interesting. Um, the dot bomb wave had a delay to reach other countries. So in the US, everything had collapsed. In Europe, they were still investing in internet companies. So I went to help European uh, VC funds 
handle the portfolio companies. Can we tell them, listen, there's something coming here and they're in trouble. It's interesting because there's no longer a delay now. Everything happens at the same time everywhere in the world, right? So if you launch, let's say, Slack, you're going to get adoption at the same time in the US and in London. Whereas back at the time, there was a six to nine months lag where when something would happen in the US, it wouldn't happen immediately. So that's what I did. I consulted for companies that help European companies restructure. And then that Bruno guy that I mentioned earlier, whom I had partnered with in the first company, um, came to me and said that an invention, I'm going to work on face recognition to be uh, able to recognize people. And my first advice to him was like, look, everybody's trying to do that. It doesn't work. Just forget it. A few months later, he came to me and said, I have something that works. So he was in Barcelona, in Spain. So I went to see him in Barcelona and he said, look, my technology is so good that I can tell apart identical twins. And I said, well, how do you do that? Because I can't tell apart identical twins. He said, that's because we look at the details of the skin and it turns out that identical twins are not identical. They're symmetrical. That's something I didn't know. But I didn't know that either. So I just call them symmetrical twins for now on, huh? Symmetrical twins, exactly. So what happens when the cells split, they're in symmetry of each other. And if you look at your face, you will see that your skin on the left is not the same as skin on the right. So as a result, the identical twins are different because they're symmetrical. So the software will look at the skin on the left, the skin on the right, and we'll be able to tell which is which. So I thought that was amazing. So it was very, very precise, this technology to recognize people. And this guy had to be, so he went to Stanford MBA with you too? No, this guy is an inventor. Because you have to be smart as hell, I imagine, to come up with that, right? In the early 2000s? Absolutely. The guy is smart as hell. Yeah, you got to be a genius, I would think, like honestly, to try to come up with something like that in the early 2000s. There are many different ways, different types of smart. And that guy, as far as smartness, he couldn't focus. So he barely finished high school and then studied a, a couple of years and would sometimes call him an idiot. And yet he was a genius and he just couldn't focus. And so he came up with his ideas. He would invent these things. I remember, so I went to Ecole Polytechnique, which is like an MIT, right? Uh, very scientific. And I'd bring scientists from Ecole Polytechnique and they would be puzzled by how smart the guy was, even though he never really made it to any college. So anyway, he invented this technology. We got in business. Can I talk to you first before you jump more into this business? I'm just curious, after you came back from Nepal and moved to New York, you said you didn't even come close to obviously making that $42 million that you were so close to making. How much money did you even have saved up when you're going to Barcelona and it sounds like about to start a new company with your friend? I had spent all my money on that company. I had no money saved. Just thousands of dollars maybe left? Yes, that's right. Negative. I had debt. I actually moved to New York. I had debt on all sorts of credit card debts and all that. Yeah, because again, I always want to put that in perspective because I'm just like, if you're traveling everywhere, doing all this stuff, okay, you're basically doing it on a credit card now when you were that close to making that much money. You're exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So jump back in. It's funny you mentioned that because I have a very positive mind. I tend to remember the good and forget the bad. <laughs> but you're right. It was quite stressful that move. There was a time when I reached 100K in debt. You know, I was fortunate that I found consulting assignments to bring some cash and gradually clear the debt. I continued my consulting things when I found him because we had no money and we started this company together. It's just any reasonable human being would have said, just take a job and settle. It's just not in me, you know? So I love entrepreneurship by then. I had that, that experience and I, that's what I wanted to continue doing. So we started that company with no funding. 
Well, I was going to say, yeah, because I just always think it's important for us not to sweep under the rug that, yeah, you were financial pressure too, right? Obviously, especially again, when you were that close to making a shit ton of money, obviously, right? So it's just, I always think that's important to put in perspective because anyone who's listening now, they could be not have any money and wondering how they're able to do it. And if you were able to do it with no money, then someone else can do it too. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we're fortunate in America to live in a strong economy. So even when things go really bad, you're going to be able to recover one way or the other. So it's something to keep in mind. But it is true, it's not for everybody. So my wife at the time had a very hard time with it, right? The idea that even we were barely out of debt, boom, I was going to re-gamble again. It was hard for her to understand. For me, that was the only thing I could do. It just I was going to do another company and it was a matter of which one. But yes, it's stressful. There's no question. And I'm sure most entrepreneurs go through that time where they just wonder how it's are they going to make ends meet? So how were you able to do it after you started this company with your friend with the facial recognition company? We found a trick. We found a bit of magic. What's the trick? Tell us the secret. Yeah, the secret uh, is generally uh, universally applicable. So it was face recognition. We thought we need to find a very compelling way to prove to the world that our technology works. So I discovered that every year in Montreal, Canada, there's a twin festival. The organizer is the organizer of the Just for Laugh Festival. She has a twin sister, and she thought it'd be very funny to ask to invite twins, have them dress identically, and walk in the streets. So it's in July every year, and if you go to the streets of Montreal, you feel like you have drunk too much because everything is double. You see people, that like everybody double, they dress the same, and they look the same, and pairs like that. That is funny. I could imagine. <laughs> So it is really weird. Um, she had, at the time, 900 pairs of twins in the streets of Montreal. And so we put a table with a computer on the table and a sign that said $500 to the pair of twins that can fool our system. So they started stopping by, you can imagine, because you know if you're a twin, you fool everybody all the time. And I thought, oh, so it's going to be so easy to win $500. And we couldn't tell them apart. So we'd write on their hand which one they are, right? And then scan them and then come back and test again a few minutes later to see if they could fool us. And we're starting recording one, two, three, four. And then we had some little girls come. There must have been five. And I called Bruno and said, listen, they're five-year-old. Is the technology going to work on a five-year-old? I said, I have no idea. And then we get these two older guys in their 70s. And like, is it going to work on people in their 70s? I said, I have no idea. At the end of the day, we have 62 pairs that have gone through our system. Zero mistakes. We did not mistake anybody. We, we recognized every single one of them. So I took the results with all the photos and everything, and I went to a conference in Washington, D.C. around security. At the time, it was 2003 or four, so security was a super high concern, as you can imagine, after September, the plane. Yeah, September 11th. September 11th, that's right. So when I showed my twins, people were amazed. And some high-level guy at the Department of Homeland Security came to me and said, this is amazing, who are you? And I said, well, we start up in Barcelona. And he said, right, well, we need that immediately. And, but he said, I can't work with a startup in Barcelona. So he called one of the biggest federal system integrators, a company called Identix. He called his CEO and he said, Joe, it would be a really good idea for you to work with these guys. So Joe got the message. He said, please come to my office in New Jersey. I said, okay, we could buy the company. And we were 11 months into it. And I thought, you know, I just missed my 42 million <laughs> time before. I'm not going to miss the exit twice. I know it's a bit early for us, but we're going to sell. 
So we did. We did a $6 million deal, which was not a huge payout, but good for 11 months of work. And we got the technology incorporated into the system from Identix. They went back to the Department of Homeland Security and the technology won the tender for uh, all the passport processing and the visa processing. So now if you uh, send your photos to get your passport, I don't know if it's still the case now, we have 15 years later, but recently it was processed by our system. You would scan the photos and see if there's anybody, if you're already in the database, if you're cheating or if you're really who you are, you say you are. And if you go to the border these days, you may have seen that there's a camera and we look for a photo of your face. And that's also processed by our software. Yeah. So like when I land in London or the new passport places or yeah, if you're landing somewhere internationally, you don't even have to go up and have your passport checked. You just go and look at something and they scan your passport and they do a facial recognition. So that's some of your technology they're using. Exactly right. And it's brilliant. I'm just back from London. You show up, you have a machine. The machine looks at you, puts your hand, and boom, it lets you in. All that because great inventors like my friend Bruno came up with a way to recognize people in a very reliable way. Yeah. Instead of waiting in 30-minute lines, you can literally take two minutes. That's right. And have some guy look at you, look at your passport, look at you, you know, as if you say, uh, you're not the same person from your passport photo 10 years ago. Yeah. All right. So you sold there. Was your wife, were y'all still together at this point? It's funny you ask because around that time when we got divorced, uh-huh. that old pressure, that old journey was too hard to take for her. She been critical of me going back into entrepreneurship. I kept telling her that the only thing I can do. And when things succeeded, we had a different view on what had happened. I thought that it was wonderful and we succeeded. And she thought that I should have listened to her. And now that they have this money, I'm going to do it again. And maybe I lose the money again, like we did before. So we got divorced. And well, yeah, because I was wondering at the time if maybe I got divorced before that. I thought she might be excited, like you were saying that, hey, look, I did come out with something at the end of the day, but I guess it still was just too much for her to deal with uh, lifestyle. It was a loss in a way, right? Because she kept telling me, don't do it. It's going to go badly. And I said, I'll do it. It'll go well. And then it went well. And so it was kind of uh, proving her wrong. And You don't want to do that? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> she must be married to know better that we, you don't want to prove your wife wrong. Nope. And spouse wrong anyway. Their spouse, they're never wrong. It's always my fault, right? That's the way it goes, yeah. <laughs> <We're better. laughs> yeah, so where'd you end up going from there? From there, I thought I'd become venture capitalist because that's what retired entrepreneurs do. And I played around with it for a few years with an affiliate of Draper, Draper Fisher Jefferson. And in the end, I realized that it wasn't for me. So I thought I should just go back to doing something more operational. There's some family problems for a year. So I take a break. Then, more specifically, the little daughter who got hit by a car and was in a coma for a month in the hospital for nine months. So at that time, I just focused on that. Her life was in danger every single I spent six months sleeping in the couch next to her bed. So that was a bit of a break in, in my professional career. Fortunately, she survived and came back to life. So then uh, after that, I had something interesting happen. A friend of mine from the UK called me and said, hey, I'm coming to New York. So I was awesome. I was bringing you to New York. He said, well, I've quit my job as chief marketing officer at Vodafone. We're doing a startup. So I said, well, it's going to be a big change for you going from this big corporation, millions of dollars of budget to doing a startup. And he said, well, not so much because my startup has $2 billion in funding. I said, you mean million? He said, no, no, billion. So what are you going to do? So it was a bet by a hedge fund guy called Phil Falcone to transform the wireless industry 
by building a network all over the US and discounting your cell phone service. So disrupting that, the market of cell phone service. And I thought it was completely fascinating. I started with 2 billion with this great project and I said, I want to be part of it. And he said, do you know anything about telecoms? I said, no, no, I know nothing. But their business plan was to not provide the service themselves directly to consumers. Rather, they were going to look for brands that already have a relationship with customers and OEM to them. So white label to them, right? So provide the service and other brands. So I said, look, I know sales and I can I know all these companies and I can go and pitch them this idea that they will use your cell phone service under their brand for their customers. I interviewed with Phil Falcon, with the CEO, and I got the job of VP of sales. And then I started pitching. So I went to pitch Center Pichai at Google. And this is about 2010 at this point in time, right? Yeah, 2011, yeah, 10, 11, yeah. Yeah, so you're about 40 or so at this point? Yeah. Okay. That's right, in my 40s, yeah. Yeah. So I get on the call with these companies and people like Google and Amazon, they say, listen, we've been waiting for that. This is a dream come true for us to have a company that's going to discount. Because, you know, what they really need, uh, Google, is more people connected uh, with higher bandwidth, right? So we started negotiating and the deal was a $500 million prepayment from Google to our company to access our services. So that was the most fascinating sales job I ever had. It was actually super easy because they were very, very keen on working with us. Amazon was also interested in uh, was negotiating a $120 million prepayment. It was a different world selling these services. That was going well, except that as we were starting to deploy the service, we found that the spectrum we were using was too close to the GPS spectrum, and we were interfering with the Army's uh, airplanes and missiles. That's not good. Not so good, no, especially the two together. And as a result, the army had Congress pass a law preventing us from deploying. So all of a sudden, these billions of dollars went up in smoke. We no longer had a license. We no longer had a business. The so company ended up in litigation and it was gone. So that was the end of that experience. It was also very nice while it lasted, but that was the end. So I took the opportunity. Uh, I said, okay, this is time for me to go back to entrepreneurship. So here's what happened. When I was running sales, I asked my reps, to give me a report every week in Salesforce. And every week I would struggle. They would say, I don't have time. And I look at the Salesforce, Salesforce, the application, the CRM, and there was nothing in there. And I thought, this is silly. We asked them to put information in Salesforce. This information is already in their email, in their contact, in their meetings. We could have a smart, intelligent system that goes into their emails, find all this information, put it in Salesforce without having, without them doing anything. So that's what I started. I started a business and said, I'm going to build this solution. It's going to be an intelligent cloud-based system that goes into reps, emails, contacts, calendars, find the information, and update the CRM automatically. Do you remember when you started your small business? It was no small feat. It took a lot of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since. So why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have the solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumbled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. 
So join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it free for 30 days. No catch and no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com forward slash MI and enter millionaire interviews and the how did you hear about us section to get started. That's freshbooks.com forward slash MI. And for more information about FreshBooks, you can go check out episode 141 where I interviewed the founder, Mike McDermott. Here's something a lot of listeners would be interested in. Orgain's grant for greater good. Orgain has given away $150,000 in grant money. So if you're a startup business working in nutrition or promoting a healthy lifestyle, then listen up. If you're like me, you know how challenging it is to start your own business. So having the right support and more money to work with can only help. That's where Orgain comes in. The Orgain is a brand that makes convenient and clean nutrition products. It was founded by Dr. Andrew Abraham, who has a great story. Basically, he developed an original nutritional shake during his fight to beat cancer in teens to help nourish himself. Andrew realized he wanted to share his recipe with the world, so he quit his job as a doctor and founded Orgain. Andrew knows from firsthand experience that people are changing the world one idea at a time, but oftentimes these ideas don't have the financial support to get off the ground, and now he wants to pay it forward. Orgain will choose three deserving startups and grant them $50,000 each to help take their businesses to the next level. So to apply for the program, your startup needs to be two years or older and in the business of promoting healthy, vibrant lives, either through nutrition, active lifestyles, or mindfulness. So the application period ends March 20th. So if you think you're a good fit, please visit orgain.com forward slash grants today to learn more. Yeah. And so did you think about that afterwards, after this blew up the cell phone deal with because the military got involved after that blew up? Is that what your next idea was that like, hey, the sales first, they are never able to print off these things and I can actually do that? While I was running the sales team, but because I was running it, you didn't have time, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I was nicely employed. It was just an idea. I have a lot of ideas. I just thought, but when the thing blew up, I said, okay, it's a sign from fate that it's time to go back to entrepreneurship and do this idea. So I did. I started the company. It took a while, but we built the system. It was challenging, but we made it work. Then I went live. I had a free offering. We had one, two, three, 10, 100, 200, 300 companies sign up. It was working well. Then I found out that I had two competitors that I hadn't noticed earlier, one in Israel, a company called Implicit, and one in San Francisco. And the company in San Francisco thought that this system of capturing information automatically was so powerful that they could actually combine it with their own CRM and go and kill Salesforce. So they actually put on their website, it's a company called Relate IQ. They put on their website, say, this is the end of CRM and the beginning of relationship intelligence because the smart software goes into your email and find all the relationship intelligence. So we went to market, started selling. Relate IQ raised a lot of money, started doing well selling because it was a very compelling solution where the reps do nothing and everything is magically in the software. We are starting doing well also. The Israeli company is starting well. Some VP at Salesforce decided to buy the Israeli company. They would been in touch. They liked what they did. So that VP acquired Implicit. And then Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, decided to buy Relate IQ. So next thing I find myself where my two main competitors have been bought by my main partner to compete with me. So that was a very tough moment. Another one of these uh, lows in uh, your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably not as low as a $42 million check, though. 
Well, it's all relative, right? When you start something and then you say that you have no business. So we ended up with no business. People said, look, your you number one partner has become your number one competitor. Because you were only on their platform too, right? That's exactly right. I was only on their platform. Yeah. So that's the issue sometimes. If you were the main guys and then they ended up buying these other two companies that did the exact same thing overnight, if, at least if you were a partner with somebody else, right? And then maybe only half your business would go. But like you're saying overnight, it ended up being like, okay, we've got everything we need. We don't need you anymore. That's exactly right. And the, the world of sales, uh, Salesforce is so dominant that right. going to other platforms and picking up the... Yeah. What other platforms are there even at that point in time? So at the point of time, there was pretty much nothing. I didn't think so. Yeah. So there's Microsoft Dynamics and SAP CRM. But like 1%, 2% of the market if that. Well, it was these old-fashioned companies that were not moving. So they would not buy additional solutions. Any company serious about sales was on Salesforce. And still today, I would say. So now there's a bit of a crack in the fortress from HubSpot. So HubSpot has launched their own CRM and being very successful with smaller companies and providing a real threat. But you're right, Salesforce is still the dominant player by far and is still the company to work with. So we pivoted. We say, we're not going to die. We're not these kind of people. We're going to find a way. And what we found is that there was a big problem around scheduling and booking meetings. At first, it was about prospecting teams, making a lot of calls and trying to book a meeting for an account executive. And it would take them seven minutes to book the meeting because they had to know which account executive to book with, find their calendar, make sure that the time is available, create the invite, send the invite, update Salesforce. That was a seven-minute process. So we automated that. We made it super easy to book a meeting in three clicks with our solution. And then we came up with that solution I mentioned earlier on our call uh, that we call Concierge to automatically book meetings directly in a form on the website. And that got us started. We were able to bootstrap. So we didn't raise money. We got to revenues very quickly. When we decided to refocus on scheduling, we got cash positive after nine months. And we grew to past 2 million in run rate AR on the strength of that solution. We kept extending the product and most recently took a 3 million DC round to extend our growth. And so that's what Chili Piper is today? Yeah, that's where we are. We have 34 people in the company. There's something I'm very proud of. We decided that we'd go distributed with the idea that there are smart people everywhere in the world. Wherever they are, wherever they want to be, if they are the right profile, we hire them. So we are 34 people from 28 cities and 12 countries all over. And we just had a big party in Ibiza last week. We flew everybody from Brazil, from Russia, from Atlanta to Ibiza. And with this big four-day party, you know, going to clubs and boats and celebrating our success together, it was awesome. Yeah. Where was the party located? Ibiza in Spain. Oh, in Spain, gotcha. Yeah. So how did it feel wrapping up your 30 years of life in one hour there? Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. It felt very pleasant. It felt very pleasant. There's a reason why we entrepreneurs do it. Is uh, When it works, it's a wonderful experience. Right. Yeah, because I mean, it's funny just like hearing your story from the beginning. I think, you know, we had a good conversation of like what your company does today. And I think it makes sense, right, with Chili Piper. But yeah. Even kind of starting off from going to Stanford Business School and you jumping around all these things, everyone's journey in business is different, especially yours, especially jumping to different cities and different countries. But it all seems like it has kind of a tech realm, if you will. But do you mind if I ask you some questions about the last 30 years and how you've been successful at it? Sure. It seems like your problem's never been not finding customers. It seems like all your businesses, that like you're able to kind of grow them pretty well. Even here, Chili Pepper is still a new company, but would you say that's true? And if so, how have you been able to do that, being able to grow all these companies 
even from day one, it seems like. So first of all, it's never as easy as it seems. You know, the impression that you just launched and of course it works. It doesn't work that way. And you, you typically launch and you... It, so for example, the universal shopping cart, I did not stop. The company is a universal shopping cart. I started something else and then I found. So what I found works really well is when you get into a space, you want to pay attention and talk to a lot of your customers to understand all their problems. And that's what has worked for me. So when I did this shopping cart, I talked to all these companies. At the beginning, we were something different. And they tell me, we were talking companies, they say, what I really need is to be able to do some commerce on my website. And I don't know how to do that. And say, well, how about we do a universal shopping cart that commerce enable? Same thing with when we pivoted. We were in the space. We had to deprecate our current service. We had to find a new service. So I talked to all these companies and say, what problems do you have? Show me how you do things. And there are places where you could do better. And that's fine problems. So almost by definition, the product and customer, because it was how it was designed, right? You've come up with a solution to something. You always have a challenge that the solution you design is not good enough. So at any time you can think, oh, that's a, uh, propose a solution, but it's not better than how they do it now. So that's your risk. But at least you start with a problem. That has been pretty consistent. You get into a market. So right now, we cheap is in the sales, sales automation, sales tech space, right? We're now focusing on sales execution. We talk to a lot of sales before, before we do a product and we really see, okay, what is the problem you have and, if, and how can we solve a solution? So that's what has worked. And as I say, it's not as easy as it looks from the outside, but it does work if you have this approach to starting a business. Right. I think time and time again, we just wrapped up literally 30 years of your life in one hour. So we know it took a lot more time than yeah, that's right. making it sound perfect. Business-wise, I mean, the successful people, what kind of makes them different is being able to find those customers and like go after them versus someone who might be more passive and starting their business, not going out and trying to find their customers. Obviously, you got to have a good product. And it seemed like you had that with all your different technologies and different technology companies that you jumped into. But even with the e-cart technology, it's just like, yeah, finding those people that you could actually sell to. I'm going to give you a piece of advice on this particular topic. I read a free book called The Mom's Test, like a test by your mom. And it's a product development book. It's actually free in PDF. If you Google The Mom's Test, you'll find it downloadable. And I can't even remember who wrote it, but that was very inspirational for me. What he says is that you're going to have an ID and you're going to talk to your mom and she's going to say, oh, it's a brilliant ID because of course she loves you, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And <laughs> so that, that's awesome, my son. But what you want to do is not ask your mom if she thinks it's a brilliant ID. It's to ask her if she has this problem, how does she solve it today? And if she doesn't, then it means it's not a real problem. And that's a very insightful observation. So you think I'm going to solve a problem and you say, well, how do you do it today? So for example, when you started with Chili Piper, we were doing this handoff between teams and we said, how do you do it today? And the answer was, we use a Google spreadsheet. So with this long, complicated spreadsheet, and that's how we decide who should book for who. And then we put it in the calendar, we put in the spreadsheet, which calendar. So you look at that, they are trying to solve it. They have a spreadsheet. The spreadsheet is a very poor way to solve it, and we're going to solve it better. But if you have something, an idea, and people say, oh, I'd love to have that, but right now I don't, so I don't do anything, it means that the problem is not big enough if people are not acting on it. And you're going to do something where you get a lot of love and no revenues. Because you get a lot of people say, oh, that's awesome what you've done, and then they won't use it because it's not a problem big enough. Yeah. And so can you walk again or give us another example of like, you said something with the Google sheet. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. If you look up the mom test, 
you just Google it. There's a website and a book. So I guess people can look on that. But can you give us another example or two or at least expand upon that? Because I think that would really help, again, entrepreneurs who are listening now to make sure they deliver something that they can actually make money on. So uh, with Chili Pepper, with the same problem in Mom Solution, those companies so, so, so when people fill a form, you need to follow up quickly, say, yes, well, what do you do about it? Well, we do a service level agreement between marketing and sales and withdraw the commission to our salespeople if they don't follow up within 10 minutes. So they were actually taking action. They were trying to get people to follow up faster. They had actually steps to solve that problem. The steps were awkward, but another one is when the previous company that was mentioning when we were automating uh, putting data into Salesforce, right? So is it a real problem that there's no data in Salesforce? Well, there are companies that say, I don't pay you commission if you don't update Salesforce. So that's another example that people are taking action on it. It's a real problem. It's a problem big enough that they're taking action. They're doing something about it. And so that tells you that it's a real problem. Whereas you can say, here's a good example. At some stage, we played around with artificial intelligence and we thought, well, we're going to do something where we'll take all the data and do forecast for the VPs of sales based on artificial intelligence. And then you go and say, oh, do you have that problem that you want to do your forecast? And people go, yeah, I have a problem. What kind of action have you taken? And they'll say, do you think are they taking action to do a better forecast? So maybe they've got some spreadsheets where they analyze what it should be. And the reality, they don't do that at all. They ask their salespeople to commit to a forecast. And that's what they use because the part of the forecast process is about commitment. It's more important to get your team to commit than it is to be precise about the forecast. So even though they'll complain that it's a problem that you have an accurate forecast, they're unlikely to use this data science esoteric solution to solve it because they're more interested in the social aspect, making sure that it's going to get commitments from vendors. So we actually did that. We came up with data science to the forecast and got no traction for that reason. So it works both ways. And if I had asked before, are you really taking action on it? I would have found that they're not. It's a problem that people like to complain about, but don't act on. Right. That's exactly what I was about to say. Someone just bitching about something versus actually doing something. So if they're actually doing something, but you can see it's very not efficient, then it's important. Like they're doing it, even though it's hard for them to do. So if you're able to actually help them make that happen versus someone who just daydreams about something that they want to do. So it sounds like maybe just, I mean, checking out the mom tests you're saying was really helpful again and might help other people. Yeah. They do a better job than I do explaining the idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, like I said, it's not everything super easy. So if people just Google that, we can put it in the show notes too to check that out. Mm -hmm. But looking back on your story, is there any last words of wisdom that you want to leave everyone with who's listening now as far as maybe starting their business or if they're in the middle of growing their business now? Any suggestions or tips? So that method that I just mentioned for me is critical in starting a business. And from there, what you're going to need is a lot of faith and energy. Yeah. Of course, you read everywhere, but you have to be persistent. You have to believe and you need some help on the faith level. So that new company I'm doing at Chili Piper, it's unusual, but my co-founder is my wife. Your first wife? No, my second wife. <laughs> <laughs> it might be really awkward if that's true. Yeah, that's right. No, the one, my second wife is much more inclined to get into the Support entrepreneurship yeah, yeah. if she's your co-founder. She's fully committed to it and that helps a lot. You need to have a support system or your faith in the business. And uh, you don't want people to give you into an illusion that things are working, but you do want people to, around you to help. At YC Combinator, they say that they heavily favor teams over single founders. For that reason, it's just hard to do it on your own. So it's okay if you're a single founder, but at least you have a support system and better if you have a, somebody else to found the company with you. 
Right. Because emotionally too, is again, like we all get through emotional pulls. It's like, if you're a single founder, there's going to be some days, no matter how driven you are, that you're going to feel down about something. But hopefully the other person in their business is feeling the opposite, right? So it just kind of helps you both move along together versus going up and down, up and down all the time. That's exactly right. So yeah, I guess we would definitely appreciate you sharing your time here. If someone wanted to check out chilipiper.com, check out more about your contact information. But if someone wanted to reach out personally and say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, the best way is to go to the Chili Piper website and you'll feel a form, you'll be connected directly with somebody on the team. It's a play on words. So Chili Piper, it's a Chili, C-H-I-L-I and Piper, P-I-P-E-R, Chili Piper all together. So it's the best way to get in touch with us. Right. So that's the way they can actually test out that it works. If it doesn't work there, then they got a problem, right? Exactly right. Yeah. But how about you personally? If they wanted to email you or reach out to you on Twitter or anything like that, do you have anything like that where they could personally reach out? Yeah, of course. My first name at chilipiper.com. So Nicholas uh, with no H, the French spelling, N-I-C-O-L-A-S at chilipiper.com. And of course, on LinkedIn, easy, easy to find. Yeah, we have direct links to it. Again, in the show notes, we always have a, where I'll go straight to your blog post and then to your LinkedIn and for this episode. Because yeah, I wasn't going to try to pronounce your last name and it's not easy to spell, it seems like, right? That's right, that's right. It's Vandenberg, yeah. Y'all can check that out. His name is Smelling if you want to look him up on LinkedIn as well. So Nicholas, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he's able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.